there. Welcome back. This is Create Out Loud, and I'm Jen Loudon, best-selling author, creativity and writing mentor, and, um, you know, generally curious soul. I get to invite all kinds of cool people on this show to talk about their creative process, how they deal with disappointment, how they make money. And this week, we have an amazing guest, just one of my favorite people. Her name is Lisa Cogden, and you know her art. You've maybe seen it on the Method bottles for, you know, all that, those soaps and cleaners and stuff. She's huge and author. She's written amazing books like Find Your Artistic voice and live your values deck. She's an activist. She's an athlete. She's incredible. And she has so much to tell us today, especially about things like how do you tell a big brand that comes a knocking what you cost? You're going to love this show for the nitty gritty. As always, let's dive in. You came to your career and calling as an artist, uh, a designer, an author, maybe a little bit later than some of us do or, <laughs> or we think we're supposed to. Did you have to overcome any thinking at the beginning? Like, why bother? It's too late. Yes. I mean, I think I lived most of my life kind of wanting to do really cool things, but thinking that it was too late, like even in my 20s, like I think... <laughs> You know, we're obsessed with, it seems silly to me now. I just turned 54 and like, I think back to being in my late twenties and wanting to do things, but thinking I was too old then, which Uh is so ridiculous to me now, but we live in this culture that's super obsessed with youth and doing things by the time you're 30, whether it's a career move or an athletic pursuit or whatever. So just pause for a second and just notice what are your thoughts, if any, that it's too late to do blank? You know, we were just both laughing, Lisa and I, because like, oh, I hear this from my daughter who's 27. Like, it's too late. It's no, now in my late 50s, I'm like, not at all. Yet it still comes up for me about other things. And of course, sometimes it is too late. I am not going to become a figure skater, for example. I'm not going to win a marathon. But there's lots and lots and lots of things I can learn, I can experience still, but not if I believe that. Why bother to even try because it's too late? So just check in with yourself. Maybe hit pause, text a friend and say, hey, what are some of the things that you've heard me say? Or here's some of the things I've been thinking about why it's too late. This helps bring your prefrontal cortex, your executive decision making uh, online and helps you get a little distance from these stories. I spent a lot of time like dreaming, but never doing. So when I finally gave myself permission to start something in my thirties, it was scary because what happened for me is that I went through this, this transformation where I was healing from a lot of heartbreak. And in the old days, we used to refer to as low self-esteem, you know, (laughs) I didn't think very highly of myself. So in the beginning, I did have a lot of like imposter syndrome. And that actually got worse when my career started to blow up. In the beginning, I was definitely having all of the usual feelings that you would have starting something that you have no training for at 34. Like, who am I to do this? Is anyone ever going to pay attention? So I think I sort of downplayed it in the beginning, like this is just a hobby. This is just what I'm doing for fun. And then we'll see where it goes. As I mentioned, some of that really intensified once things did start moving for me. Oh, now people are paying attention. I really shouldn't be doing this. Who am I really? All the usual doubt. I have become in my fifties, a very confident, grounded person. It really has been an evolution for me. I haven't always felt this way in my body and in my spirit. So this fascinating that as you started to have some success that you found those voices growing louder, did anything help you with that? One of the first 
things I remember that helped me shift into a, this isn't really real. This is a story you're telling yourself. I want to say this is about 10 years ago. I was giving a studio tour when I lived in California to a group of design students from California College of the Arts. And I started talking about the fact that I was sort of racked with imposter syndrome because Unlike them, I hadn't gone to school. I remember this, the teacher of the class was this pretty well-known, pretty famous designer, super nice guy. I don't even remember his name, but I remember he said, oh, that never goes away. Like we all feel it. And I was like, wait, what? You, this white cisgender male who's super successful, you experience imposter syndrome. You pinch yourself every day because (laughs) you're in this world. And it was kind of comforting for me to hear that it was like completely normal and that had really in reality had nothing to do with one's skill set or experience. That's what we feel. We feel like lucky to be somewhere. I think it's particularly true for women, you know, when we experience success, like this must be luck. This can't possibly be real. I just remember starting to talk about it also on the blog that I kept at the time. People were commenting like, yes, me too, me too, me too, me too. And I was like, oh, I'm not alone. And then the more I read about imposter syndrome and like everything that sort of plays into it, the more I started to realize it was kind of this illusion and that I was a story I was telling myself. That coupled with continuing to get jobs and work and be invited to speak at conferences and win awards over time, I was like, okay, this is real. (laughs) This isn't going to just go away tomorrow. Like I do have talent. I do. I have wisdom to share. This is all real. And I created this. It's not something I should feel ashamed of or downplay. I need to stand in my power. And that really happened in the last four years, believe it or not. It took me me a long time, but I feel like I'm finally there. I mean, you know, I still have those moments where like I'll have an interview with a really famous person or something will really amazing will happen in my career. I will feel this, who am I? (laughs) What am I doing here moment? But it's really not like every day like it used to be. So I couldn't help but think when Lisa was talking just now about her confidence really started to grow, especially as she became so successful, that it was real easy to have the thought, at least it was for me, well, that's nice for you, but what about me? I'm still struggling to sell my work, find an audience, develop my voice, and I don't have that feedback coming in that I'm doing well to build my confidence. And I've been there. I've had a lot of success, and I've had failures and struggles. So I know both sides of it. And what I've really learned, and maybe I'll do a a solo episode about this, but what I've really come to understand is that if my self-worth as a person is tied up in the results that I'm getting and the feedback I'm getting, I can't keep doing the work and I can't keep growing. So the biggest process or practice rather for me is to keep separating out the results that I'm getting, the sales or the attention or the invites or whatever from my value as a person. And then the second thing is, is to really make marketing as big a part of my week as creating content, serving my clients and students. That's really, really difficult for me. (laughs) But little tiny actions, little micro actions of marketing. uh, Our episode with Pam Slim really gave us some good ideas about that. So if you haven't listened to that one and you thought, I don't want to learn about marketing, go back and listen to that one. It is full of gold. 
Lisa, you do a lot of things. You wear a lot mm-hmm. of hats. You know, you're an artist, you're an author, you're an activist, you're a teacher adjunct. You work with brands to license your art. You work with partners to create products like the new, uh, the Live Your Values deck or, or newer. You're a collector. You have a store. Okay, big question. How do you manage it all? Well, and then on top of that, I like, I'm a cyclist and I, right. bike. you know, I have this very full life outside of art and my business. <laughs> The first thing I want to say is that I don't necessarily manage it all very well all of the time. That's something that most people see because that would be like a messy story to tell every day. The surface, I sort of manage somehow to get all my deadlines done and continue to put my work into the world, but it's not without a lot of work and thought on how to actually scale that back or how to manage it in a way that allows me more breathing room. Playing this to my friend, Lindsay, last night, she's like, what what are you grappling with right now? And we always have these really deep conversations. What I'm grappling with is this idea that I'm super passionate. If I get an idea, I want to execute it. And I feel fear just like the next person, but I'm able to really plow through and get things done and like make ideas come to life. While I love that, I was mentioning to you earlier that I used to be this person who was very insecure about putting anything into the world. I am now this person who's, I have an idea. I want to execute it. You know, I've got ideas about all kinds of things and I love teaching and I get feedback that I'm good at it. And I like speaking and I have feedback that I'm good at it. And I like Mm -hmm. illustrating. I want to do all of it. I also want to get back to the world. You know, things pull at my heartstrings. I just founded a nonprofit and that's all really great because I, I love all the things, but at the end of the day, it's too much right? Mm -hmm. And I'm one person and I have a team, which I'll talk about in a second. Holding all of that and managing all of that has become really hard. I am um, working with a coach right now to try to figure out like what is a feasible amount of work for me to do in all of the areas that bring me joy? How can I stagger them? And how can I be realistic and have realistic expectations about what I can accomplish in a period of time? And how can I put more boundaries around that? Both by saying no to really precious opportunities that come my way, um, doing a better job of staggering things and all the things that we do to try to manage our time. I am a pretty good focused worker. I probably put in too many hours in a day. And how many hours do you typically work? I start work at nine and I end at five, but I often do work at night. I like to brag at different periods of my life that, you know, I've stopped doing that, but it always creeps back in, especially when I'm super busy. I am married to somebody who also has a really demanding, very exciting job. And she also finds herself working sometimes at night. It's kind of easy to be like, oh, no Netflix for us tonight. Uh, (laughs) Let's meet in the basement in front of the TV at 830 once we've put in a couple hours after dinner. I also have the great privilege of making enough money to have two full-time well-paid employees and one half-time contractor who does strategy for me. So I have a head of operations and I have a head of retail and product development and then a head of strategy who works works for me part-time. I have a part-time kind of like person who comes in and help help ship when my retail person and my operations person are overwhelmed with shipping because they also do packing and shipping. That has been a game changer for me, delegating, learning to trust other people, hiring really smart women in their 40s who do not aspire to be me, just Mm -hmm. want to support my business, find joy in their jobs and are creatively and intellectually stimulated by the work. I just feel so grateful. I asked this very question to somebody on my own podcast last week and 
we were talking about how it's a work in progress. It's like, there's never enough time to do all the things you want. People are always surprised that I sleep eight hours a night. I am very organized and efficient. If I turned my computer around right now, you would see a complete disaster on my work table, but I'm an artist. So I mm-hmm. like have also learned to let go of the messes mm-hmm. and really focus on what's in my on my plate in the present moment and a few days out and stay focused on what I have to accomplish in the short term while sort of also kind of planning the, the long term. So far that's worked for me. I don't know that I will ever be a person who has complete work-life balance until maybe I'm retired and I don't even know if that will ever happen. I really want to have enough downtime and relaxation and time on my bike to feel spaciousness, but I also want to allow myself to do all the things because I am at this time in my life where I have a ton of energy and passion. I also don't want to fight it too much because it brings me life. Yeah. We have these, I think sometimes outmoded or even patriarchal ideas of what work-life balance is supposed to look like. But that idea of what is it that, what is the fluidity of that and the spaciousness? And for me, it's, it's that sense of not having too many appointments and yes. not rushing. I, rushing is the thing that I'm trying to walk away from. Yes. The squeeze, because your work suffers. It's like- And your you soul know, suffers. Your soul suffers. I don't mind having a lot to do every day. I just want time to do all of the things that mm-hmm. are on my plate. And I enjoy don't necessarily it. need to stare at the ceiling or- take an hour long lunch break. I just want, yeah, that spaciousness is exactly how you're describing it. That's sort of for me, what I'm trying to go for right now. You've done a number of collaborations. You collaborate with big brands, but you also collaborate with just people like you and I recently released the Live Your Values deck, which is beautiful. And I'm really enjoying working with it. So how do you decide who to collaborate with? That's yeah. a big question for creatives. You know, I used to collaborate with people out of, I'm not good enough and I need you. And that was almost always a disaster. That is definitely something that's been part of my past and that I'm fighting to this day. I've gotten to the point in my career where I get a lot of inquiries from folks who want to do projects with me. The Live Your Values deck is actually something I pitched to Chronicle. I've been working with Chronicle Books, who published the deck for years. I've worked with Simon & Schuster as well. I'm working with Workman now on another project, but I you know, I've worked with Chronicle on most of my titles. Uh, my friend Andrea, who I made the deck with, came to me and was like, we are both lead these values-driven businesses. We had, you know, shared with each other that we had both done the values exercise where we, you know, the sorting exercise that mm-hmm. the deck is based on and that it was kind of life-changing for us, that it was actually an idea that was kind of out in the world. Nobody held the copyright to it. We were like, oh, we can take this idea and turn it into a cool product. We pitched it to Chronicle, they acquired it, and that was that. And that's been the case for a couple of projects I've done with them. Most of the time, however, companies come to me, big companies, small companies, individuals, and they say, we want to work with you on X, Y, or Z. For the big brand stuff, I have an agent. We talk a lot about at this time, like, what you know, money does this warrant? Because mm-hmm. oftentimes they don't give you tell you what they they want to pay you. They ask you to quote something. <laughs> we can't get them to tell us what their budget is. You know, slippery something, which is just always scary, right? Because if you really want it, you don't want to quote it too high. And if you know, you also don't want to undersell yourself. Some of how I decide who to work with has to do with what is the brand and are do I share values with that brand mm. or is there some connection like. I'm signing on right now with a cycling company, which I can't talk about yet because we haven't signed the dotted line. Dream client, right? Because bikes are everything in my life. I did work last year with Method, great company, like 
I've got another sporting goods company that I have some running shoes coming out with. How connected is what the company does to, to my, my own passions and interests? It's like also money. Let's face mm -hmm. it. You know, I, I did some work with Amazon last year and I'm working with Google right now. And a lot of it is, oh, I can pay my salaries with this money. My employee salaries, kind of a no brainer, pretty easy work for the money. They want to actually hire an independent artist and work with her instead of ripping off her artwork. So much of it has to do with the timeline. Like how much do I have on my plate already? And my coach is really helping me to figure out like in a quarter, say between January and end of March, how much work can I feasibly handle? And I've been doing this long enough that I can now say like, you know, one large job or two medium jobs or whatever. Right. And so we make an agreement about how much work I'm going to take on so that if I get three or four inquiries, I can only take one or two of them. As we were just talking about time is so important. And if I'm rushing to do too much work, I'm going to be miserable. The work isn't going to be as strong. All of those things kind of factor into who I work with. Sometimes it's, I know somebody I'm not going to say no to this person, or maybe sometimes I want to do the project, but I don't have time. Then the question becomes, can they push it off into a later date? Like there's all kinds of negotiation that go on when people contact me and reach out to me. It's still like a crapshoot every single time. And, you know, then I have to manage my time and time block my day to make sure that I'm attending to all the different projects that I'm working on. You know, sometimes I get in this place where I'm like, I should, never should have said yes to this. This is a terrible job. I should have known. And just recently I declined two jobs. We were in pretty high in conversations, like ready to sign on the dotted line. And I bailed because I'm listening to my gut for the first time. Oh. And it used to be that if I were, had had a long enough conversation with a company or a brand or a nonprofit. Oh my God. Yes. And I had, even though I hadn't signed a contract, if I felt like I had taken too much of their time or they sent me $500 worth of samples of their product to try to woo me that I felt yes. this like obligation to like work with them. In both of these cases, I, my gut was like, something is telling me it's not even the people. It's not even the product. It's just like, something's telling me that this is too much, or this is not the right project for me. And I'm finally listened. And I had my agent reach out to two different clients in the last two weeks where we, we withdrew. They were super cool about it. I think they understand. I'm just so proud of myself because the old me never would have done that. I've, I've met you. You like me. <laughs> we laughed together and now yeah. I owe you. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Deep breaths. I'm even like having anxiety talking about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I can feel it. I just wanted to say a couple of the words about um, working with other people. Lisa went in a direction with, you know, working with big brands and, and that's all really exciting. But again, it may not be available to most of us that are listening and certainly is not something that's happening in my career or something that I want right now. So what about um, collaborating? That's the word I'm looking for with, uh, you know, friends or other cool people that you meet. And how do you really decide, is this worth it? I think, first of all, you have to be willing to take it slow and do little tests to see if they're bringing something to the table that you don't have. You don't want to collaborate with people who bring the exact same skills to the table. You want someone who's going to stretch you and grow you, but also bring other skills or insights to the project. And you don't want to jump into it full bore. You want to say, wait, let's do something small and see, do we like working together? What is it like? What's our communication style? It's like dating instead of getting married. I think the second thing is really, why are you looking for these collaborations? I used to collaborate with people, many of which were kind of disasters. 
because I thought I couldn't stand on my own two feet to do X, whatever it was, fill an event or um, I can't think of another example. I used to collaborate a lot on my teaching and I would have those teaching experiences and I would be really disappointed in the other person and their prep and how they held space and how they cared for students. But sometimes I went back and collaborated again or even again because I didn't trust myself enough. So look at what are you looking for from the collaboration and what are you afraid that you need? And it's fine. It's great if you're collaborating with someone because you want them to bring something to the table. But if you're clear about it, then you can ask for it. You can develop that into the project versus kind of thinking, oh, I suck at this, so I hope they'll do it. You know, it's not as clear. I think the third thing, of course, is you really need to spell everything out really clearly in writing. And fourth, you need to have a plan before things go south of how you will negotiate money, ending a project, um, who pays what. Don't leave any of that vague. Overdo it. Let's just go back for a second. They say, how much would you charge moment versus this is how much our budget is. So what have you found, if anything, helps your agent? You sort of discuss anything you might know about what they, what this kind of company has on tap or. Yeah, exactly. My agent works with, well, there's a cadre of now there's, I think about five of us who are represented by him and all of us are pretty well known and work with good brands. He has a lot of experience. It's like, I think when you're an agent for pool of artists who are working for brands, you start over time, over a few years to get a good idea of what the kind of job it is, what brands are willing to pay people, an influencer that is always very attractive to brands Mm -hmm. that I might share the thing that I made with them. And it's often a separate part of the contract too, where I get paid to do social media. So that really helps. Sometimes my agent's name is Ryan. Sometimes we're stumped. (laughs) You know, there's always that company or that job where we're like, they're big, but they're not that big. And what they're asking you to do is kind of like, I don't know. So then the question is, what would make you want to do this? Mm -hmm. And if it's a brand that I feel really aligned with, I might be willing to do it for less money, kind of like lowball. But if it's a brand that I'm like, I just want to see what they say. And I'm not necessarily even that interested in working with them, or I wouldn't be crestfallen if this fell through, I might aim really high. Only in one case in the last few years that I've worked with Ryan, have we gotten a no way can we afford you, but thank you. Most of the time they're either willing to say would counter or reduce the amount of work. Sometimes that helps to negotiate or they extend the timeline so that I have more time. As I mentioned, there's all these different ways that you can kind of negotiate Sometimes it's just like, okay, I think it feels like it should be this. And we agree on a number and then we put it out there and then they have the opportunity to accept or decline. Sometimes you get lucky and a company like this happened with Method. And actually I got in contract with them before I signed with Ryan. So I was on my own at the time. I didn't have an agent. And they were like, how much would you charge for this? I didn't actually know. I was excited, but I was like, I have no idea. And I said, well, what's your budget? And they told me something that was literally... (laughs) 
I mean, four or five times what I would have asked for to the point where I screamed when I got the email. And then the, that ended up increasing because they did more bottles of soap with me. And my wife comes running downstairs, like, what's wrong? And I was like crying. And it was like the highest paid thing I had ever done. And they wanted to license existing work. I didn't even have to really do anything. It always pays to ask if they're willing to tell you. I'm finding that the more well-known I become and the more of a sort of like personality and kind of voice commodity I become, (laughs) commodity, I hate that word, like the more I'm able to ask for, which sometimes feels ridiculous for the Mm -hmm. amount of work I'm being paid. I'll take it. I feel like I'm making up for lost time anyway. Do you feel about being on Instagram and being an influencer? I feel like I've gotten the sense sometimes that you needed to take a break or, you know, that you have a, you don't have a completely at peace relationship with Instagram. (laughs) I don't know that anybody does, but I don't. Yeah. And if anybody does, they need to write a book. I still struggle and Instagram has changed so much. Like the algorithm has changed. What gets featured and exposed to more people has changed. I went through a period where my Instagram exploded and I was getting a ton of engagement, a ton of likes. I knew exactly what to post to grab people's attention. I was telling more and more personal stories, which people were connecting with. I was talking more and more about politics. While I didn't say vagina, I definitely said some things that were- (laughs) Don't say vagina. (laughs) Um, You know, my following was really engaged with that content. There is only so much of that you can do before you burn out. I've never done anything or put anything out there that made me feel like I was selling out. I do have always, even in the moments where I've been posting often and talking about things that I knew were going to get engagement, never has it been inauthentic. When I post a thought or a message, it's something that I really believe in and have personal experience with, which is why I often couple my artwork with a personal story. And my book, You Will Leave a Trail of Stars is kind of a compilation of a lot of that. But when you're doing that kind of like heavy hitting personal even controversial content, it can be exhausting both to create it and think about it, but also to interact with people who are reacting to it. I have really gotten pretty burned out. Like I used to post every day. I probably, I haven't posted in a few days now. I haven't even thought about it. And I actually feel so liberated from Instagram right now. When I do post that stuff, it doesn't get the same likes or engagement as it used to because the algorithm has changed. I think people also get burned out on certain kinds of content and move on. I still have a very devoted following. And because I have, you know, 450,000 followers, I still have a critical mass of people paying attention to my work, wanting to buy things when I post about them, all the things. I think if I was somebody who had a much smaller following and the algorithm had changed, it would feel really hard. And I know it does feel really hard for a lot of artists. I just have started to let go of attaching any sense of value or worth to my Instagram engagement. And I think I did for a long period of time. It's hard not to. It's hard not to. It's it's engineered to make you do that. Right. And then when you're having success with it, it feels good. It feels great. It feels and great. <laughs> I've to so many artists about this and we are all going through this shift. So I made this commitment in 2022 that I'm just going to post when I feel like it and post what I feel like posting, even if I think it's going to get like a dribble of likes. And I'm feeling nostalgic for that because when I first joined Instagram, that's what it was yeah. like for me before I even had a following. It wasn't fraught with all this. Are people going to pay attention to this? Are mm-hmm. people going to like it? Is this going to get a lot of likes? Like I'm starting to not care, genuinely not care. And I do feel like that's a privilege because I already have a lot of followers. So not very many likes for me is like huge for other people, you know, and I get that. 
I'm just glad I've, I joined Instagram at a time when my work plus Instagram was like a match made in heaven. I make work that's very, was at for a time, Instagram friendly messages, bright colors, graphic, you know, my voice really came through now. What is Instagram friendly has changed. And so I don't know that I'm ready to change with it or that I want to, I'm just going to keep making art and putting it out there. Hey there, I just wanted to interrupt our regularly scheduled programming to tell you about something new and wonderful that I've created. And we are offering the Writing Retreat Circle. I hear from a lot of writers, I don't want to do your more intensive programs. I don't want to coach with you one-on-one, but I need help. I need help to get a project done, to get a project started, to get back to writing or to meet a deadline. And I'm having a hard time doing it by myself. I need some containment, some structure, some inspiration. And I I got some questions. I don't have anybody to ask. The Writing Retreat Circle. It's a half day virtual writing retreat plus a momentum meetup coaching call. You can buy as many months as you want and create your own schedule of, I know I'm gonna show up for my writing and say April and May, and then again in September and October, right? Or every month, or maybe just try it once and see if you like it. I create some of the best writing retreats in person and virtual on the planet. It's a weird thing, but I've dedicated a lot of my life to learning how to put together a great retreat that really helps feed your sense of confidence and feed your sense of knowing what your project is about and believing in it and getting a lot of words on the page, no matter what your level of writing experience or your genre. So we'll have professional writers who are finishing things in these retreats and we'll have people who are like, I just gotta listen to this call to write. Come and check it out at jenniferloudon.com forward slash writing dash retreat dash circle. And again, pick the months you want and get the inspiration, the confidence and the work done and create a lovely schedule of that for yourself in 2022. Love to have you. Speaking of voice, I love this book. Oh, thank you. Find your artistic voice. I have lots and lots of marks in it and underlines and dog-eared. It really speaks to something that I have been interested in for so many years is how do we develop our voice more because I work primarily with writers. This is a book that works for writers and all creatives. And I think of any discipline so much. And I wanted to ask you, what are the major elements of an artistic voice? (laughs) Me on the spot here. I need to, of course, I'm having a brain fart. Uh causal brain fart at the moment let's talk through them wait a minute i'm finding elements of style is that oh yeah yeah well style is one element of your voice um I think. I love it. I actually just want to pause here because I think this is something that really happens to creatives who've been working for decades, been publishing and teaching and putting stuff out for 30 years now. And people ask you questions from work, whether it was the last book was two years ago and you have moved on and we're allowed to move on. It's It's not that I don't know what element I'm like, I got to get it right because it's in the book. (laughs) (laughs) And then I have that sort of nervous, like, um, yeah. <laughs> I think that a lot of people who either, you know, I can't speak for going to art school because I never went to art school, but I think a lot of people who want to be artists think somehow, especially in this day and age where we're so flooded with imagery, trends, how we think our work should look or the kind of work we should be making or the subject matter that we should be making, we think it should mimic what's on trend in order for it to 
to sell. And my argument in the book is really your voice is your truth. We all reference other people, whether Mm -hmm. we're a writer or a visual artist, like we have influences. We wouldn't be artists and writers if we didn't have influences, if we didn't fall in love with an artist or a group of artists or a genre of art or a genre of writing, right? We consume that because it helps us find our own voice. But ultimately we need to move away from our influences. That comes from, first of all, practicing, making marks on the proverbial canvas every single day. And the more you do that, even if you're sort of mimicking or copying at first, the more you do that, the more your way of doing it, which is like ingrained in your DNA, the more that emerges. It's like the more also we come from the place of telling our own story, our own truth. A lot of people think in order to have an artistic voice or tell a story or have truth, that your truth needs to be some big profound thing. Like your art is about oppression or your art is about the abuse you suffered as a child. And while that might be what your work is about, and that's amazing, it might also just be that you love drawing flowers. Or in my case, I love shapes and symbols and I love an imaginary grid. And pretty much all my work is like very organized. And maybe that you dig dug deeper, you would probably find out that that's my reaction to like chaos. You know, my story, my truth is that I'm trying to create some sense of control in a world that feels very chaotic. And closer we can get to what is my truth? What are all the aspects of my truth? Pouring those onto whatever medium we choose, whether it's figurative, literal, or it's not literal and abstract. It doesn't matter. We're channeling our own truth. And that's a big, big, big part of your voice that gets neglected. I think people think of your voice as your style and your style is definitely a huge part of your voice, but it's not the whole story. It's not everything. Your subject matter, what you choose to make and draw and paint and what that's about is just as important as the style that you render it in. And that I think is hard for some people because they think, well, if I just make things that don't have any meaning, but are in this sort of abstract style, that's okay. And I guess that's okay. But like the more we can dig into our feelings and our histories and our passions and our interests, the more interesting our work is going to be, the more layered and nuanced it's going to be. You write about in Find Your Artistic Voice how you did that work at a particular point in time to dig through and find those sort of deeper impulses. Do you still have to keep doing that? Yes. I mean, I'm at a place right now. I'm feeling a little stuck. I talk about this in the book that we not only hit one impasse, we hit many. Any creative person, you'll spend sometimes years in a certain flow where it seems like, yeah, you know, we have these awkward moments always as part of the creative process, but where subject matter and style and execution and skill and all that stuff that are elements of your voice, like all of those things seem to flow out of you. And then you think, oh, I've got it now until I'm 90 years old and on my deathbed, I've got it. And then, you know, one day you wake up, you don't got it anymore. You know, sometimes it's because you're burned out. Sometimes it's because you've fleshed out that particular way of working Mm -hmm. to the point where you're actually bored with it and you need to try something new. I'm not really sure what's going on with me right now, but I'm feeling like I need, and I'm trying to build in more time in my schedule to experiment and not have that experiment have to lead to anything and just really absorb the pleasure and the experience of making so that new things can come forth for me, that I can make new discoveries and try new things because I've been doing things the same way for a while now and I'm ready to move on, but I don't know what the next thing is. I've been through this so many times in so many iterations that I know not to freak out. Fortunately, 
again, I'm lucky and privileged to have a lot of people come to me and want to pay me to make work in the way that I know how. And that's very fast and easy for me. I can make a living while also taking a kind of creative break in my personal work to figure out what's next. Eventually that personal work kind of morphs into my professional work. So I, I kind of think about having like two buckets, like the stuff I'm really good at where my voice is really solid and I can execute easily. When I do it, I'm in a flow because it is pretty easy for me the bucket where I'm constantly challenging myself to learn new things and to try new things. And whether it's a new mindset or a new material or a new way of doing something, I feel like if I didn't have the challenge bucket in my back pocket at all times, I would get really bored. Even when I'm in a space of flow, even when I always like to be challenging myself a little bit. That right there may be the takeaway for me from this podcast episode, which is you gotta have time to do your work that's just for you to expand and learn and change. I forget that over and over and over again, and then I get bored, and then I want to burn everything down. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Lisa. Thank you. So tell me this week, what will it look like to spend time in the challenge bucket? Beginning of January, I started keeping a sketchbook again. And in 2017, I got an iPad, and I've been drawing on Procreate, which is a digital drawing program. And it has literally changed my practice. I love digital drawing. I'm really good at it. It's very fast for me. It's kind of become my sweet spot. I abandoned my sketchbook because now even when I'm sketching or doing personal work, it's on the iPad. I also have found myself, and I know this is true for a lot of my artist friends who've gone on a similar path. We miss the tactile nature Mm -hmm. of, of paint and paper and the messiness and the fact that you can't undo every time you do something that doesn't look right. It challenges you in a different way. Committed to a sketchbook practice. The first few days of January, I went off without a hitch and then I got really busy doing client work and I haven't touched it in a few days. A couple of days ago, I went back to this spread that I had started a few days before that. It wasn't coming out the way that I wanted and I was not liking it. And I felt anxiety and I was like, oh, I'm feeling anxiety because I'm so used to making things to show the world. What if I just stayed in this spot of discomfort and kept working on this spread especially if I don't, I still don't like it, or if it doesn't end up being anything special, I just turned the page and started another spread without taking a picture of it and sharing it with the world. I don't have to share everything. Not everything has to be perfect. Not everything has to be fast. I can spend a week on one sketchbook spread. I don't have to do one a day. Nobody cares. Nobody's paying attention. Cut yourself some slack. And that's literally the conversation I had with myself the other day. I feel like now that I've relaxed into it, I'm having so much more fun. So the challenging part for me is actually the mindset around experimenting and letting go of this looks cool or this doesn't look cool. Every now and again, I'll make something that looks cool in my sketchbook and I'll probably share it, but there'll probably be lots of experiments in there that are kind of a hot mess. And that's the thing. It's like, I preach that to my students. I preach it to everybody I speak to. And yet I found myself not holding myself to the same expectations. We can be so much harder on ourselves than we are on other people. I also think it's part of being a professional creative. What I have found is one of the things that leads to burnout. And I've been struggling with burnout for the last couple of years. Part of it's a pandemic for sure. But part of it is that constant need to produce, to meet the deadline or to share the content or to be on social media, whatever form it takes to keep the business growing. And that starts to overshadow any sense of play or personal voice or personal work. And I'm really working on that myself. I got a ways ways to go. Team and I, we had a 
a day long retreat, our second day back or third day back in January and like a in-house retreat. My strategist, Les, who's a great facilitator, led us through all of these activities. And we decided like our word for the year, our, our goal for the year, our, our like brand pillar for the year was play that I really wanted to play more in my art practice, but they want to have fun doing their jobs. I was like, ah, yes, this is it. And we got to check in with each other about that because it's so easy to make those goals and it's so easy to forget them. I try to read first thing in the morning and I often forget, but read first thing in the morning, those things that I'm trying to learn, like to have better boundaries with students and to show up for my students as much as they show up for themselves instead of being the one who's like, hi, 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 let me, can I do it for you? Two last questions. You've been a serious athlete for a lot of your life. Do you think that influences your creativity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a couple different ways. Like I think that I used to swim competitively. Mm -hmm. I haven't swam in a long time, but now I'm on my bike. And I think this is true for a lot of endurance sports. You're spending a lot of time doing the thing. And even when you're with people doing the thing, you're still in your own head. And Mm -hmm. I get some of my best ideas when I'm in that liminal space. And when I'm being so present with the road and where I am in that moment, because if I'm not, I will crash just running ideas through my head, paying attention to the road at the same time. You know, sometimes I'm even bored on a bike ride. So I'll force myself to think about like, Mm -hmm. Hey, what am I going to make tomorrow when I go to the studio? I think it really helps open me up to ideas. It's kind of like when you're laying at bed at night or in the shower or on a long airplane ride, you know, you have these moments where you can't do anything else. So your mind goes really crazy. I also think the discipline required for mm-hmm. at least being an endurance athlete or being really good at something is and the, the way you have to sort of keep showing up and keep practicing is really good working those literal muscles is also good for kind of like strengthening the mental muscle to stick with things that are hard or uncomfortable in your, in your creative practice. I do credit my kind of very athletic life, my discipline around athletics with like strengthening my grit to show up in my creative practice when I'm uncomfortable, when I don't know how to do something, when I have to learn something new, all that stuff. They feel super complimentary to me. I'm really grateful for them. And to be honest, and this doesn't isn't necessarily an answer to your question, but I also love having this thing that uses very different parts of my my body and my being. I also have all of these friends that I ride bikes with, and they all know I'm an artist, and they all come to my shop and shop during the holidays. None of them are artists. My cycling friends are all you know physical therapists and retired teachers, and they are I don't want to say regular people because artists are regular people too, but they're they're not artists. And I love hanging out with them because I don't have to talk about what I do for a living. And I don't have to kvetch about things. Like I can just be with them as, you know, one of them. I'm just a regular person to them. Like I'm so well known in, in my art life and there people have expectations of me. And that often feels like a lot of pressure. And when I'm on my bike, I'm actually a very mediocre cyclist. I'm probably faster than the average 54 year old woman, but like I'm decent, but I'm not that great. I will never be famous for it. I love it, but it's this thing that I'm just regular at. And I have just like these regular friends who also do it. That brings me so much joy. It's such a relief from this life I have as an artist, especially an artist on social media. I feel like it complements my life in so many ways. Yeah, Yeah. I get that. That's exactly what I experienced with running. So last question that I love to ask people is what do you want to learn next, Lisa? Hmm. I am learning and want to continue to learn how to manage this 
constant source of angst for me, which is I want to do all the things, but I don't have time. Mm. And I want in my, as I get older, I want to settle into this place and I'm experiencing it more and more like that big aha the other day that I had around my sketchbook. You don't have to turn this into anything special spending parts of my day just doing something that has no pressure attached to it. I'm sure you can relate to this. Totally. I'm so right there right now. You're just like, I'm like, oh my God, we're having the same exact experience right now. I'm so... I have worked so hard to build my career. I have said, yes, I was a yes person for so long. I have been so disciplined. I have showed up. I have worked hard. I have done all the things. Yes. I also have a lot of privilege that has helped me get here, but I'm here. I don't need to make as much of an effort to, as I used to getting off the hamster wheel is really hard. Like I think Mm -hmm. we so easily get wrapped up in old behavior while, while, you know, like this mindset that I better say yes to this opportunity. Cause if I don't, it's going to be bad karma or they're all going to go away or they're going to go away. Or I owe this person something that what, you know, we, we were talking about earlier, really letting go and just being like, I don't owe anybody anything. And again, this is something that I preach constantly. And partly the, the reason I preach it is because I need to hear it myself. <laughs> like this is my life, my time, and I deserve to have some of it dedicated to doing things that don't feel like a lot of pressure. When I first started writing on my cycling team, a lot of my teammates were like, you should race. And I was like, oh no. And here's why. It's not that I'm afraid of losing or not being good at it. It's because I have so much pressure in my career. Cycling is the one thing. Meanwhile, a couple of years ago, I discovered gravel cycling and now I am doing gravel races. But what I love about gravel races is it's not about winning. It's not even about your time. It's about the experience. So I found a way to race and participate in gravel Mm -hmm. cycling that doesn't feel like a lot of pressure. Sometimes it's nerve wracking because it's slightly dangerous, but like, but it's not the same pressure as I feel in my career. And I want to have more of that, like more time and activity that feels genuinely joyful, but with out the pressure because my work is joyful, but there's pressure attached to it. There Absolutely. are deadlines. There's, you know, I have to get things done. They need to performance. be performance. It's performance. Thank you for helping me put language to this. I think I want to learn how to spend some of my time not performing, not setting goals, just being. It's like even reading books has goals attached to it for me. Like I'll be like, I'm going to read one book a week and I'm an avid reader and I manage somehow to find time before I go to bed. I feel like that is, again, creating expectations and stress that I don't need. It's a work in progress, but that's really what I want to learn. I want to learn how to chill during periods of, of my day. Completely relate. <laughs> I started running late, later in life. I think I was 53, 54. And I got into it and I was racing and blah, blah, blah. not because I'm fast or yeah. good or anything, yeah. but because it was fun. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit and I stopped wanting to push myself running. And my husband, hi, Bob, I love you. He keeps saying things. He listens to all the podcast episodes, you guys. He's like, <laughs> you know, like, come on, come on. And I'm like, I don't want to push myself in one more thing. You know, I want to find the joy again in running or, and the same thing in making art and And so I'm with you. I hear you. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, where's the joy? Where's the joy? Where's the chill vibe that that vibe where I'm like, not performing Do this. Yeah, not performing. That's the key. Well, Lisa, I am so delighted to spend this time with you. You're wonderful. Your work is is beautiful and wonderful. And I'm just so thankful that you opened up and and took us into your world for a little while. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jen. It was really great. 
I love how honest people are on this show. It's so beneficial, isn't it, to hear people who are really successful talk about the ups and downs and just the really specific nitty gritty. I know for me, the big takeaway was just hearing Lisa say that she also has collaborated with people for the wrong reasons. I think I've walked away from that in my life, but I got to tell you, that's been a big, big one for me in the past. So that was a big takeaway. Also, you don't owe anybody if you've had conversations, if you've gone down the proposal or whatever process and you realize it's not for you. Those are my takeaways. What are yours? Please share them with another creative friend. Please share that you got them on this show. It helps us grow and it also means that this knowledge doesn't just die here, but it goes out into the world and helps more people. And that's what I want the most. Next week, I have a super special guest, one of my very favorite authors. I think I've read every book she's written, pretty darn sure. It's Sue Monk Kidd. Sue Monk Kidd is the author of the phenomenally successful book, The Secret Life of Bees, her first novel. But she's also a memoirist, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. And she's the author of a spiritual book that many, many women have found transformative, When the Heart Waits. She's also an incredibly articulate and generous soul, and you are going to love this episode, I promise. I hope you're subscribed because that's the easiest way to know that we've got a new episode of Create Out Loud waiting for you. And hey, by the way, we do really good show notes over at jenniferloudon.com. Just go there and click on podcast and you can find all kinds of links and you know, things that we talk about on the show and you can say, hey, there it is. I don't have to go Google it. I can just click on it. Super, super great. Okay, that's enough of me. Let's get back to what matters. Go create out loud. I'll see you next week for Sue Monk Kid. Take care.